Welcome to the fourth episode of Cutting Edge. I'm Landon Sturdivant, and for those of you who have been tuning in day in and day out, your support means so much, and hopefully these episodes continue to be engaging, enjoyable, and valuable to you. Any feedback, insights, commentary, or suggestions for future episodes that you may have are greatly appreciated. Today we're talking Squid Game, and though I'm going to avoid revealing any significant events in the series for those who haven't watched, just to be safe, this episode could contain spoilers, and if you've not seen it or haven't finished it yet, and are someone who wants to be completely surprised, proceed at your own risk. The Korean Netflix series has gone absolutely global since its release on September 17th of this year. It's on pace to be the most watched Netflix series of all time, as it surpassed the launch day viewership record previously held by Bridgerton with 111 million views, and its popularity has only grown exponentially in the last month. Leaked Netflix data also suggests that the nine-episode series has produced $891 million U.S. million in profit already. But what is it about this show that makes it so ridiculously dynamic all over the world? For those of you who may not have tuned into the show yet, which I'm sure is a very small number of people at this point, Squid Game primarily follows four characters. The first and the main character is a man named Song Gi-hon, played by Lee Jung-jae, a man in his late 40s who is a gambling addict, grossly indebted, divorced, in minority custody of his young daughter, and desperate for solutions to his financial crisis. He's initially a very buffoonish and cringeworthy character, given his obvious disregard for his own habits and his family, which make him, makes him very easy to dislike. The second is a man named Cho Song-woo, played by Park Hai-soo, who is slightly younger than Gi-hon, but went to the same high school as him and was renowned as a genius. He studied at Seoul National University, which is effectively the Stanford of South Korea, it's the most prestigious university in the nation, and became the head of investments at a securities company. He was fronting as somebody who was insanely successful, um, and his hometown believed that, but he was actually billions of won in debt, won being the Korean currency, and being hunted down by Korean police for stealing from clients. Third is a girl named Kong Saibyuk, played by Jung Ho Yeon who fled the tyranny of North Korea and needed money to pay for a broker that would retrieve her younger brother and mother who were still in the North. The fourth character is a Korean policeman named Hwang Joon-ho, played by Wee Ha-joon, who is essentially acting as a vigilante against the Korean police force, who are oblivious of the Squid Game, and since his brother recently went missing, he followed the clues into the game, posing as a guard to find his brother and expose it. Essentially, Gi-hon, Song-woo, Sai-byuk all agree to go into the game for the promise of a cash prize. In the game, they play six childhood games, such as Red Light, Green Light, and Tug of War, and only one contestant out of the 456 will walk away with everything. However, what's not said or understood is that a failure to execute in these games results in getting murdered. With each death, though, 100 million won is added to the jackpot, making the grand total 45.6 billion won, roughly 38 million U.S. dollars. What's not as well known is that Huang Don-hyuk, the director of the series, had been sitting on this idea since 2008. He was rejected by several production companies because 10 plus years ago, they didn't believe it would be a profitable film. Number one, they thought the violence made it unappeasable. Obviously, this is pre-Game of Thrones, so really these days, if the show's good enough, violence is never going to be an issue. It also helps that Netflix, being the titan of all streaming sources now, has changed their regulations on the ratings of violent content, making it more easily accessible to gain traction. Secondly, however, the premise of the film was way less conceivable back then. The overarching theme of the show is that you have 456 people, all broken miserable, who will play childhood games where you get killed for losing because there's money being dangled in their face. 
Uh, now, with all the events that have transpired in, over the past decade, it's way easier to fathom that, including that thing that shall not be named since the algorithm messes with your content if you say it. And I know Instagram and YouTube do, but um, I don't know about Spotify, but just to be safe, we're going to refer to it as that thing. Um, it makes it more of a thing that can be embraced. It makes it relatable as it reinterprets and exaggerates the separation of socioeconomic classes and what one will do when they feel like they can't get ahead in life in a way that's understandable but also entertaining. More importantly, though, um, it's just a good show. Similar to countless other series that get popular on Netflix, Squid Game's characters are thoughtfully written. They're all so easy to hate and root against, and yet you find yourself getting tense as they take on the next game and encounter near misses in the face of death. You want them to come out alive, knowing their backgrounds and their intentions to make their own lives better and their families' lives better. On the flip side of this, though, you also see the strength of each character's moral compass slowly wear down as the games progress, as more people die and as more money piles into the transparent globe that hangs above the sleeping quarters. You see the people they really are. You see characters, especially one in particular for those who have watched, flip on people they swore were their allies, deceive them, and try to cheat themselves to the other side. It makes you question how your own morals would hold up in that same situation. One article I read while researching for this episode also pointed out the contrast of how it's a survival game based around elementary games. Don Hyuk says that irony was intended to pr provoke a thought in the viewer's mind of just why they would die over such trivial games. It all comes back to the idea that despite the irreversible trauma that they would get from watching people die around them while infinitely stressing over their own lives, their lives back home were still more miserable and it wasn't worth going back to that. The guards even suggest that they can leave if they want and remind them they came in at their own free will. And it was really their own willing choice to stay since striving for more was better than going back to nothing. Dong Hyuk drew this inspiration from his own economic struggles back when the idea was originally formed in 2008. He was in his late 30s, living with his mother and grandmother, similar to Gihon in the show, and eventually had to stop writing the script so he could sell his laptop just to get $675 in cash. Considering the show's current success, though, I'm sure that's pocket change by now. It's amazing to think that he was concerned that the language barrier may hinder viewership, now admitting that that clearly wasn't an issue, as it's been subtitled in 31 languages and dubbed in 13, and it's the number one show on Netflix in more than 90 countries. But get this, 95% of the show's total viewership is outside of Korea. Dong Hyuk has spoken on how Netflix has changed the game for international film and television, uh, stating that presenting a show to another country came with challenges such as time barriers, language barriers, finding a distributor, and entering it at film festivals. With streaming services such as Netflix and YouTube, however, the infrastructure to bring shows to the world is readily available for everyone. If you're looking for a binge-worthy show, I certainly recommend this one, and hopefully my insight on how the show was such a global phenomenon made sense and had relevance to you. Thanks again for listening. Um, I'm going to link my sources in the, in the bio below because believe it or not, um, or the podcast description rather, believe it or not, I don't come up with the stuff just off the top of my head. Um, I'm also going to uh, link my Instagram both for the podcast and for myself and also my personal Snapchat and email. Um, if you want to follow me, you can hit follow on Spotify if you're listening here. Uh, the podcast is also available on Amazon Music and will soon be available on Apple Podcasts and Pandora. Um, if you want to follow it on Instagram, that's Cutting Edge IG 
at C-U-T-T-I-N-G-E-D-G-E-I-G. Um, just how it's spelled in the artwork, just with an I-G. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm going to be under Landon underscore Sturdivant at um, just how it's spelled in the artwork as well on Instagram. And on Snapchat, I'm LT Sturdivant 21. That's L-T-S-T-U-R-D-E-V-A-N-T 21 on Snapchat. And over email, same thing, LT Sturdivant, L-T-S-T-U-R-D-E-V-A-N-T at yahoo.com. All that's going to be in the podcast description as well. And with all that being said, thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.